Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here today under perfect blue skies and I haven't been able to say that for many episodes. I'm in the far eastern fells and I'm with author, illustrator and our guide for today's walk, Mark Richards. Hi Mark. Hello David. Wow, we've hit the gold dust today. It's uh, a totally blue sky but it's not cold. Really very mild, isn't it? And just one of those perfect, very early spring, late winter days. This is what being out in the lakes is all about. We've broken through into the most wonderful day in a gorgeous setting. Where are we, Mark? Put us on the map. Most people have heard of Horsewater as a lake in Mardale. And we're on a side valley just below the dam called Naddle Valley, which... People who may have known of you, David, will know that you also live in a Naddle Valley. I do, and it means... The Tapered Valley. Yeah, a beautiful valley, this one, um, well off the beaten track. We're looking out over wooded fell sides, and we're here today celebrating something very special in uh, local and national book publishing, Mark. It's the publication of a new book about the work that's being done in this fabulous valley. Talk us through that. Right, well, the RSPB have been here for quite a while. It's on United Utilities land, and they have nurtured this landscape. And the author of this book is the current principal warden here, Lee Schofield. Lee's book, Wild Fell, came out last week, and in it he talks very candidly about this hugely ambitious landscape scale project. Now, one of the subjects we haven't really talked about so far in Country Strides history is rewilding, uh, a subject that can bring up strong feelings, but Lee's book tackles a lot of that head-on, trying to balance looking after the ecology of this place while also seeing if there's a way for farming to coexist. So lots of issues that are very current about biodiversity loss, about how we can graze the commons in a way that takes us forward, looks into climate change and how the uplands can be used. These are very topical issues and uh, have you, you've read it, have you Mark? I've given it an initial glance because I, I wanted to hear Lee in person and then I was going to read it in greater depth. Loads of fabulous projects going on in this valley including I think James Rebanks uh, coined rewiggling uh, term so taking becks out of their man-made watercourses, the channeled courses, letting them spill out over the floodplain. They've got a tree nursery local to here where they're growing all these species of upland flowers and plants that have been lost through um, historic grazing patterns. And they're doing an awful lot of planting here, so they're slowly transforming this valley. And the walk also that we're planning today, talk us through it, but it has a, a resonance for you as well, Mark. <laughs> well, when I first visited Naddle Farm, that was 49 years ago, come nine days' time, because if you buy Wainwright's Outlying Fells Guide, you'll see he refers to me being his companion on a walk on the 10th of March, 1973. And we walked from the farm up onto Harper Hills, Hareshaw, and onto Hugh Lathe's Pike and back down, a modest three-mile circuit. So I'm not quite sure of the dynamics of this, but either you're my Wainwright for today or the other way around, which would be <laughs> very odd. And then we're going to go down the other side into Rowan Tree Beck. Rowan Tree Thwaite Beck. So the clearing of the Rowan Trees. That's it. And oh. a Beck. And a Beck, yes. Right. It's well, all it, in there. It's all in there. This is a landscape full of not only human connections, but all these natural connections the RSBB have been trying to rekindle. I'm looking forward to this very much. I can see Lee standing waiting for us over there by what I think is the tree nursery. So let's go and meet Lee. Right, well, we've arrived at the nursery and standing by the gateway and beyond the lovely barn 
is our good friend Lee Schofield. Welcome to Country Stride, Lee. It's wonderful to see you. Could you tell me a little bit about yourself, where you come from and how you got into the RSPB? Will do. Thanks for having me. So I've been in this job here at Horswater for about nine years. Um, I was born in Scotland, but I grew up in Devon following a degree in zoology and a master's in ecological management. I did lots of kind of short-term conservation contracts for wildlife trusts and things. Um, and then when this job came up, I jumped at it. So my wife's from Cumbria and we moved up to Cumbria to be closer to family when our, when our two kids were born. You've produced a book. What led you to produce this book and what's the essence of it? In its simplest form, it's, it's an account of my nine years of working in this job um, and the ecological restoration work that we've been doing so it charts the issues you know why nature perhaps isn't faring quite as well in this landscape as it could be a range of trips that I took to uh, places in the UK and overseas to see how we might go about dealing with those issues solving some of the problems that the land was facing um, and then describes the work that we've done so far and, and paints a picture of what the landscape will hopefully be like once the projects that we're setting in motion at the moment will yield when they come to fruition. Well we're standing beside this handsome dry stone barn and in the foreground there is a lot of plants a young juniper i believe so in this little patch that we've got behind us or gravel line to allow the water to drain away effectively you know we can fit three four thousand juniper in here so um juniper in the landscape it's a relatively scarce tree it's suffered from many centuries of quite high levels of grazing and although the adult tree is quite spiny and resistant to grazing the saplings are quite palatable. They, you know, they don't develop that sort of spininess for a little while. And as a result, most of the trees that we've got in the landscape are very mature um, and they are starting to kind of die off. And without the replacement of that next generation, then, then you know, there's a risk that we lose juniper. Juniper is one of a range of species that we're growing. So you know, the full suite of native tree species that we've got growing on site, we collect seeds and cuttings, we grow them on, um, but we also grow lots of alpine plants. So species that have been sort of pushed back to refuges in the landscape cliffs and crags and things that have become very restricted taking seeds from those as well growing them on is a big part of our conservation work and kind of getting that seed source re-established in the landscape again there's a lot of ecological restoration being done particularly here and many of our listeners will appreciate the term rewilding how do you define that rewilding means lots of different things to lots of different people we actually tend not to use the term rewilding here partly because it is quite an inflammatory term there's a lot of people that associate rewilding with clearance and sweeping away people so that the land is left completely to its own devices that's absolutely not what we're doing here you know there's actually been a quite a big increase in jobs and lots of human activity here and you know it's a spectrum so at, at the far end of that spectrum rewilding is a full re-establishment of wilderness with its full complement of carnivores and herbivores and something that is is never going to happen in the Lake District you know there is no possibility that we are going to restore that full suite of species back to the Lake District and all of those processes associated with it if you slide back down that spectrum restoring the meanders to the beck in Swindale you could certainly call that rewilding if you wanted to getting trees back into the landscape planting them perhaps you wouldn't call rewilding but once they are there those seeds then being allowed to replace themselves over time potentially that's rewilding so it's got lots of different elements to it species reintroductions is an element of it um, and that is something that you know we are actively considering here so beavers i think could play an important role in looking after the landscape here pine martins belong here but have disappeared water voles have gone there's a possibility of reintroducing those so so we want to consider all of these options but they are not all going to be open to us you know we are not going to see wolves back in this landscape in my lifetime i don't think and in the context of the walk we're going to do today can you sort of highlight in advance what we're going to see some of the most obvious things will be a lot of the tree planting work that we've done there's trees that have been in the ground for coming up a decade now and there's some that have gone in more recently um, we're going to head up onto Mardell Common and look at a small tarn that we've restored alongside some bog restoration so blocking up moorland drains to to get the peat wet again the biggest change that we've made is the change to the grazing and it's not easy to necessarily see that because it's winter and there aren't there aren't that many animals out and about but that is the thing that is going to fundamentally shift the kind of the, the the state of the habitats that we're looking after here at Horsewater. Come out to a point where the track opens just a little, you get a view of the upper part of the valley. 
and we're surrounded by trees of all dimensions. Alder, um, beside the beck, and then there's a, a range of other trees. Birch trees, ash trees, immediately over the fence where the beck is tumbling down, there are alders with uh, stools coming up with that coppice on its base. Can you describe the relationship between that and the grazed alders we've just passed? Sure. We're standing next to a grazing exclosure. All of the land that we're looking after belongs to United Utilities, the water company, and the vast majority of it drains into the reservoir. So there's a series of subterranean pipes that take water that isn't falling directly onto the reservoir's catchment into the reservoir. So managing the land for water is a massive focus for us. For water, for wildlife and for people is our sort of slogan. And one of the things that's really important is to protect the various watercourses that are running through the site from the risks associated with grazing. Almost all of the streams, certainly all of the substantial sized ones, have had grazing exclosures put up around them to stop livestock from basically dying or dunging in the watercourse. That could create a really major problem. Of course the term exclosure is? Just a fence that's designed to keep something out. So an enclosure is, is a fence to keep something in, an exclosure is a fence to keep something out. It's something called cryptosporidium which is the really big risk that United Utilities is concerned about which is carried in the dung of all mammals. Um, so by breaking that pathway between those livestock and the watercourses it reduces the risk of cryptosporidium getting into the water supply. It's effectively kind of improving the quality of the water in the catchment. But it also has some really interesting um, ecological effects as well. So the alders which are inside this exclosure fence look very very different to the ones that are just outside in the field which is grazed by sheep. These ones inside the exclosure have all this lovely epicormic growth it's called, so multiple stems growing out the base of the alders. And this is how alder really wants to grow, so each individual stem is only going to last so long, you know, it's not a, it's, it's not a hugely long-lived tree, eventually the main stem is going to fall over, and with all this epicormic growth there's all of these replacements that are ready to come up and take over from that parent stem that falls over. That epicormic growth creates a really lovely sort of thick base and wrens can nest in it, provides leaves lower down for you know perhaps roe deer to browse on. It's going to have a whole different sort of suite of invertebrates and things that are using it compared to just the single lollipop type tree that we can see in the wider landscape. And an older lasts 100, 120 years or something? Yeah a bit more. You do see some bigger ones but often it's, it's coppicing or pollarding that, that kind of keeps them alive for a longer period of time. Now you mentioned about the water quality and this is really all boils down to Manchester Corporation in original thought when they dammed the valley and created horse water in Mardale. Manchester as a booming sort of industrial centre was growing really really rapidly at the end of the 1800s. In order to safeguard that population and provide them with a reliable clean supply of drinking water the Manchester Water Corporation Act was passed in 1919, which allowed the Manchester Water Corporation to, to compulsorily purchase the Hawes Water catchment. So it's 10,000 hectares of land, 100 square kilometres, and they were then able to construct a dam and create Hawes Water Reservoir. And although the water from Hawes Water Reservoir does provide people locally as well, the bulk of it goes off via the treatment works at Kendall and then off down to Manchester. Lots of people know that there was a, quite a human cost associated with that. There were a couple of hamlets, Mizand and Mardell Green, and, and several isolated farms in the valley that were flooded when that reservoir was created. So there are about 45 people that lived in the valley um, that lost their homes as a result of that, of that work. That fundamentally changed the character of the whole of Mardale. Up until that point, it had been a, you know, a fairly quiet backwater, but a fairly bustling place at the same time. For a long time, there were mountain passes that went over, so the Gatesgarth Pass and the Nambil Pass. Mardell would have had quite a through traffic of trade um, going way back. I think as vehicles had sort of replaced ponies and, and, and foot traffic, it became more of a backwater. But it was still a place that people lived. There was a church, there was a school, there was a pub. It was a proper settlement. And when it was flooded, it really it changed the look of the place, it changed the ecology of the place. One of the things that I think people think of when they think of Horswater now is that it feels a very wild place. And I think one of the reasons for that is you get this transition from water straight to fell. You know, you haven't got those field patterns anymore because they're all beneath the waterline now. There's a couple of isolated barns, but very little else. The mark of people isn't anything like as visible here as it used to be or as visible as in many other of the, the Lake District valleys. One of the things that that led to I don't think this is any coincidence, the valley becoming much quieter is probably part of the reason that Golden Eagles settled at Horswater in 1969. 
So after an absence of 170 years, a couple of pairs were circulating around the Lake District because there was a growing population in southern Scotland. So thanks to um, forestry plantations, which can support quite a lot of ground game, um, the Golden Eagle numbers have built up. And the Lake District is part of the same landscape as the Scottish borders as far as the Golden Eagle is concerned. These pairs circulated around one settled on Harter Fell at the, uh, the far end of the reservoir initially. It was probably too busy and it abandoned those eggs that were laid for the first time in 170 years. Um, and they moved round into Riggendale and there they stayed for the next 45 years. And that's how the RSPB has ended up here and I guess how I have ended up here as a result too. So initially we were all about protecting the valley, protecting Riggendale, keeping it quiet, giving the eagles the best possible chance of success. We opened up a viewpoint after a while to kind of share the birds with people and then in 2015, that story kind of came to an end. So the last male, um, who'd been on his own for a decade, disappeared during the winter of 2015, around the time of Storm Desmond. So we think probably because he was already an elderly bird, 20 years old, we think it was probably too hard for him to hunt during that period. And he probably just starved to death, never found his body or anything. And because the population in southern Scotland had dwindled so much during that period, the last female, the second female, she wasn't replaced. So... England is once again without golden eagles, which is something of a damning indictment of the state of our countryside that you know we can't support even a single golden eagle across the whole of England when historically there used to be hundreds. And they were the top end of the predator list, were they? Ten of birds, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. They're the top avian predator, along with white-tailed eagles, which are now back in our skies again, thanks to reintroduction projects. Um, not yet in Cumbria, though they do pass through from time to time. But yeah, they occupy a really, really important place in that food chain and ecosystems don't function as they should do without predators. So what we're doing here at Horswater, we hope, will make the landscape one that is fit for eagles again some point in the future. Fabulous. I was lucky enough to see the last golden eagle. Was that the same for you? Yes, so I arrived in the job here at Horswater a couple of years before the last male disappeared. But the bird, as he got older, his sort of display flight seemed to be less and less enthusiastic, so it became... It became less and less of a spectacle, frankly. And, you know, myself and colleagues and the volunteers that ran the viewpoint, we, we sort of all knew what was coming. You know, we'd always hope, you know, will there be another female that will come in? But I think we all knew that this was probably the end of the road. It was amazing seeing them. You know, they are just the most spectacular bird. And watching, watching him kind of cruising up the length of Rigandale, which is a pretty stunning valley, was always a massive thrill. But, yeah, it was always kind of tinged with that sadness that we suspected that this was probably the end of the road. Anybody who's got a copy of my Great Mounted Days can actually see a, a photograph I took of that eagle. So there's an opportunity to go in the old second-hand bookshops and see if you can find one. <laughs> we'll uh, plod up further up this track towards the sun, which is so beaming down. It's wonderful. Having stumbled through the tussocks beside that fence, we've come up onto a quite high setting now, and we've come to a spot uh, where I've got a wonderful view. If I look back, look east, and I can see Mickle Fell in the Pennines. So that's something to clap your eyes on. You can see the shadow of uh, Merton Pike. Swinging round, looking towards the south, you've got Harper Hills, Hare Shore, Wolf Crags, Cellside Pike and Branstree, which is like a little plateau over the brow there. But what we've got is a gathering of fences. So they've got a fence coming in in three directions and they define something specifically. Can you tell me what it's all about? We're at the junction of three different grazing regimes. Um, so the one that we're stood in is a unit which is still grazed by sheep. And it's probably... Pretty recognisable to most folk who walk in the Lake District. The grass is quite short. There's a covering of heather on one of those rocky knolls just in front of us, but the heather is clipped very, very tightly. Um, there are wetter areas where it's a bit more rushy. It's a pretty typical kind of Lake District vegetation state at this time of year. Just to our right um, is a 50 hectare block, which has only been grazed by cattle for the last um, eight years or so. So it has about 10 hardy native breed cattle that graze um, just for the summer months between April and October. Uh, and then it's left to its own devices. And the vegetation in there is really quite different. It is much more tussocky, as we found as we just walked our way up to it. The heather that's growing over the rocks, which is 
very similar kind of situation to the bit that's in the Grey's unit just in front of me. But the heather is much more kind of luxuriant. It's much taller. There's lots and lots of bog asphodel growing in there because we've done quite a lot of work to block up the drains. There's quite a large area of peat soil in there. There's less bracken as well. You can see the, the, mm. the fence runs through a few bracken patches. Quite. And because the cattle have been marching up and down that fence, they've trampled that bracken and it's it's appreciably thinner. It's appreciably more kind of sparse on the cattle grey side than it is on the sheep grey side. And the cattle tend to follow the fence as they well do. at yeah. times. Yeah. So that would emphasise that degradation of the bracken. Of the bracken, yeah. I'm amazed in that short time that the heather has come back to that degree. Yeah, so eight years ago, before we, we sort of made the, the changes in here, those rocky knolls looked exactly the same as the one right in front of us here with the heather sort of clipped right mm. right down to, to to sort of the nub and then we've got the third place over to our left hand side which is an area that's had grazing excluded from it for around about 20 years the heather is twice as tall as it is over in the the cattle grazed unit and that heather is a really positive indicator species of it tells you what's going on with the grazing pressure it tells you a lot about what's happening with grazing pressure in the winter in particular so when the goodness has gone out of the grass sheep often tend to switch to eating heather and other dwarf shrubs so a big focus for stewardship schemes across the lake district has been to try to reduce the grazing pressure in the winter in particular to get that to get that um, dwarf shrub heather sort of moorland back again and the reason for that is that heather is a flowering plant producing nectar and uh, for, for, for bumblebees and a whole range of invertebrates it provides a sort of a structure that you don't really get in a grassy sward that things like stone chats will nest in red grouse eat it you are never going to see red grouse in a place that doesn't have any heather or certainly not in any appreciable numbers they might just pass through from time to time i suppose but the really kind of key thing here is is that actually each one of these things is supporting a different suite of species so if we had all of just the completely ungraded area it wouldn't be as good for meadow pipits or skylarks which need quite close cropped grassland if we had everything that was just grazed by the cattle likewise we probably wouldn't have those species associated with shorter grass so a diversity of different management approaches leads to a diversity of different habitats which leads to a diversity of different species so a big part of our message at Horswater is that managing land is not a binary choice between rewilding if you want to call it that and farming mosaic. it's a mosaic and that's what the lake district landscape is it's a mosaic that has been dominated for a very long time by the sheep grazing element of that mosaic. And I think as we're kind of moving into the future and, and we need to make land more resilient to, the, to a changing climate and help it to sustain more wildlife again, we probably need to sort of shift that mosaic and have more cattle grazed areas and more ungrazed areas. But that doesn't mean that's to the exclusion of sheep grazing everywhere. Every valley is going to have a different mixture of those different regimes. We're obviously doing things in a particular way here because we're managing the land for water and for wildlife. In other valleys where there is more of an emphasis on farming, it will be different. But there is room for all three of these different options almost every everywhere and it's just how we kind of like find that blend in each different place. What makes a distinction in grazing terms or in impact terms between cattle and sheep? So they graze in a really different way. Cattle being larger they have large mouths and they rip at the vegetation and they basically take whatever is there. Um, sheep with their much smaller mouths can be much more selective. They are more selective grazers so they can get their kind of smaller mouths into the sward and they can pick out the sort of sweeter, more palatable species. And quite often that means they're taking flowers, it means they're taking the tree seedlings, whereas the cattle, they just, they just can't be that selective. So they rip out all the coarse stuff as well. When you've had centuries of very selective sheep grazing, it tends to leave you with a sward which is dominated by the things that they don't want to eat. So the coarse grasses, the millennia, you know, those really kind of silica rich, horrible, unpalatable species, those are the ones that now dominate vast ways of the Lake District. And that's all down to those sort of selective tendencies of the sheep. The other really fundamental distinction between sheep and cattle is that cattle are a native grazing animal. So in a wild sort of primordial Lake District landscape, we had the ancestors of cattle, horses, pigs and deer. That was our kind of grazing regime, but we didn't have sheep. They originated in Mesopotamia. They arrived with sort of early people kind of six, 7,000 years ago. Um, so they've been here a long time, but in evolutionary time, that's nothing. You know, no. our plant life hasn't adapted to cope with the way that sheep graze in the way that it that it can cope with those other native grazing species. There were great areas of the Lake District that in monastic terms, where they called them vaccaries, where they were just devoted to cattle. Yeah, the cattle played a really important role in, in kind of opening up 
the Lake District. And those traditions have largely been forgotten. And, you know, there are lots and lots of cattle-related place names. There's a Beastman's Crag just over on Rosgill and Ralphon Common. There's Butterwick just down the road. Um, there's probably more cattle place names than there are sheep place names, actually, in this part of the world. And the other quality that cattle do, with that tearing away at the turf, that sort of opens up patches that uh, receding occur? Yep. It's not just through their mouths, so it's, it's their feet as well. So, um, you know, they've got much greater weight than sheep do. So a hoof print can just open up a little pocket of soil, uh, which is just a perfect bed for seeds to rain down into. So I was checking the cattle just in that block of woodland over there in um, Merkside 2, that's called, in the autumn. And this year was an amazing year for, um, this last year I should say, was an amazing year for, for birch seed. There was just huge amounts of birch seed that was produced. And the cattle had spent the night in the wood and they were just completely covered in birch seed. And then as I saw them, they kind of were working their way out into the mire. And as they were moving around, that birch seed that they were covered in was just kind of dropping off all over the place. Some of that fell onto their cow pats. That's a really good seedbed. Some of it fell into their hoof slots. That's a good seedbed as well. They're a really important natural process in their own right, just helping to diversify the landscape and its vegetation. I've witnessed that in my own garden. Uh, a herd of ling cattle escaped and went down our track and th- over our lawn, which is pretty damp. Uh, the following year had the most abundant crop of orchids. Amazing. We'd never seen them before. That's brilliant. We got brilliant. 200 orchids in one new year. Unbelievable. Excellent. There you are. I gave up mowing the lawn. That was it. <laughs> Love it. We'll go a little bit further. I think you've got a little surprise to give us. Fascinating spot, this, Lee. I've got an open view again. I've uh, broken the horizon. I can see Kidster Pike and high rays and low rays with uh, the very top of Velta Crags over to the west. In the foreground, we've got Heathermoor with a little craggy outcrop with a few tree plantings on the brow. In the foreground, you can hear the tinkle of water, but there are little wooden barriers in there. What's the purpose of those, Lee? Those are timber dams that were installed um, by Cumbria Wildlife Trust up here a few years ago as part of a big programme of bog restoration up on the common. Um, So like almost every bit of peat soil in the UK uplands probably, the bogs up here had been affected by artificial drainage. In the places where water was kind of moving across the land, at some point in time, farmer or farmers with spades over their shoulders had come up and just deepened the water courses or created new ones where there weren't any water just to kind of get the water table down to dry the land out in order to try to improve it for um, for agriculture improve it for grazing a lot of this was done actually post second world war so um, subsidies were paid for land drainage to try to you know agriculturally improve land And while that made sense at the time, the negative environmental consequences we're becoming increasingly aware of now. So by by lowering the water table in peat soil, you expose that peat to the air, carbon in that peat oxidises, and huge amounts of carbon dioxide are released into the atmosphere. By putting dams in to bring the water table back up to the surface where it used to be, you re-wet that peat, and then it actually becomes a carbon sink again instead of a carbon source. So the sphagnum mosses that do really, really well in that very nice, wet, waterlogged um, peat soil, they are the building blocks of peat. As the sphagnum moss builds up over time, it's layering itself constantly, and the peat soil then begins to grow again, very slowly, at a rate of about a millimetre a year, in good conditions. The point is that it's not losing that carbon dioxide into the atmosphere anymore. So there's been a huge programme of that done all across um, Mardell Common and across the wider United Utilities Estate, as well as across the Lake District. So Cumbria Wildlife Trust are kind of really sort of spearheading that sort of peat restoration movement. While we had the diggers up here four or five years ago, um, we were looking at all the maps and seeing you know, where the, the drains were that needed to be blocked. And we noticed something looking back on some of the old maps that was really intriguing to us. The oldest ordnance survey maps showed a small tarn just close to where we're, where we're standing. The next iteration of the ordnance survey maps, it was still there. By 1950, it was still there. But the versions of the maps afterwards, that tarn wasn't there anymore. And when we started at Horswater, where we took on the tenancies 10 years ago, there was no sign of that tarn. There was a small kind of wet, boggy area, a bit of a puddle with a long, straight drain taking the water away from it. So while we had the diggers up here doing all this peat restoration, we asked them to to do a bit of overkill on the drain that came out of this location where that tarn used to be on the map. 
and hey presto, the tarn reappeared. And it's a bit like a sort of Scottish lochan. It's quite small and complex. There's lots of vegetation coming out of it in the summer. It's full of bog bean and there's loads of butterflies and dragonflies around it. It's a really fantastic, rich feature in the landscape again now. And it's been brought back to life just simply by sort of blocking up the drain that was taking the water out of the end of it. Interesting. I look at my feet and there's what you might normally see with amongst the heather and so on. But I notice some ferns just down there, which are rather intriguing. Lush looking ferns. What are those? So those are hard fern, um, Blechnum spicant. Like most fern species other than bracken, um, that's very palatable. It's not a rare plant particularly, but you don't tend to see it all that often in grazed landscapes or places that are grazed quite heavily. So before now, I would have expected to see it on some of these sort of rocky banks to our side here in the, in the sort of the steeper, more inaccessible places. But the fact that we're seeing it down here on level ground growing amid the bog asphodel and the heather and the bilberry is a really positive sign that the grazing here is light enough to allow that kind of natural regeneration to occur. And there's, there's actually quite a bit of that fern in the sward around us here. That will have been so common here in the past and that lochan down there and the nature of that hollow there is far more diverse now even in the short time so it is a, a window on the past that you are bringing to the future. Rewilding is often criticised as being a bit sort of obsessed with the past and trying to restore something that used to be and actually we need to think more about the future we need to be more forward-looking and thinking about what these landscapes can provide us with in terms of um, you know flood risk reduction and carbon sequestration and all those things so they need to be they need to be providing the sort of the needs of society today and on into the future but that said those plans are often very informed by the past and the things that were here before so that tarn was a kind of a ghost in the landscape that we've brought back to life again the patches of bracken which are where we've done the most of the tree planting. Bracken indicates where the soils are sufficiently deep and dry. Bracken is basically ghost woodlands in the landscape. You know, if we can get trees back in, that is the place that we should focus on first of all. And there's probably 10% of the Lake District, something like that, that is just monoculture bracken. Getting that re-established as woodland is going to keep us all very busy for a good long while, I think. But, you know, there's all these other ghosts in the landscape as well. So not far away... We've got um, an eagle crag. One of the most fascinating things about the return of the eagles in 1969 um, was that they settled in a valley which had a crag called Eagle Crag. It was a place that they'd obviously used historically. It was probably named because it facilitated people finding a nest to go and steal their eggs or kill the birds, potentially. In the same valley, there is a heron crag, which is a derivation of urn, uh, which is the name for white-tailed eagle. We've got place names that relate to black grouse and wildcats and pine martins. Um, there's a gleed howl not too far away from us, which relates to red kites, which are now returning thanks to reintroduction efforts, but were, you know, were extinct as a breeding bird in the UK for, or in England anyway, for a long time. So there's all these species that we, we lived alongside, our ancestors lived alongside for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And for a whole range of different reasons, we've either consciously wiped them out or we've modified the landscape so much that they just weren't able to survive in it anymore. Trying to learn those lessons from the past in order to inform what we do now to make this landscape richer for the future is what we're all about here at Horsewater. And one of the themes in your book, which is eye-catching because they are, are flowers. Yeah. Um, and they're something that, that doesn't tend to have all that much of a kind of historical reference. You know, you can find records of there being particular plants in an area, but it doesn't tend to say how abundant they were. But flowers are absolutely the kind of the fundamental building blocks of a healthy natural environment. So where you've had high levels of grazing, you tend to favour grasses over flowers. Flowering plants have their growing points at their tips, so when you repeatedly graze them, you bite those grazing points off, they tend to disappear from the sward, whereas grasses have their growing points at the base, so they can tolerate a much higher level of grazing. And so we've ended up, because of high levels of grazing across our Lake District landscape for many hundreds of years, we've ended up with a landscape which is dominated by grasses. And when you relax that grazing pressure, quite often you see a real blooming of wildflowers coming back. So there's a really powerful example from the Pennines during the foot and mouth crisis where, you know, sheep were just not on the hill and there was this spectacular blossoming of the fells that nobody had ever seen before and species that people didn't even realise grew in England all of a sudden just appeared out of the sward. So what you really need is, is this sort of dynamic, quite light, quite random grazing regime, one which basically mimics how 
roving herds of herbivores would have moved through this landscape in the longer term and that will bring back the flowers and once you've got the flowers then you've got the bees and all the other invertebrates and that's the food for the birds and the other wildlife so a big focus in my book is 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 you know a focus on flowers bringing them out from the kind of refuges in the landscape the cliffs and crags that they've become restricted to and, and you know getting them back into our landscapes again over the last uh, what, nine years that you've been here you've had particular field trips let's call them forays abroad to landscapes that are replicable and indicate what this could have looked like and I think Norway was very influential on your thinking. Yep I was really lucky to have three weeks of sabbatical out to southwest Norway and as you say it's you know geologically it's the same landscape and the climate is 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 really quite similar so they have sort of harder snowier winters but still the rainfall levels are pretty similar the temperatures are kind of similar and all the vegetation all the plant life that I saw out there pretty much was things that I knew from back home. But the difference is that their upland landscapes had a very long rest from grazing. So there was a period of mass um, emigration due to rural poverty um, and sheep grazing, sheep farming, farming full stop basically just, just came to an end for the best part of a century. And as a result, the landscape now is very wooded, very flower dominated, very rich in wildlife, but is now being, farming is returning, but it's returning at a level which is incredibly light touch so grazing regimes that are typically a sort of about a fifth of what's typical well the lower end of what's typical here and actually because the habitat is so resilient and so rich the sheep don't they probably do a benefit because they create that bit of disturbance and they allow the seeds to move around in the way that other grazing animals can do so it's not to say that i'm wanting mass clearance of the entire landscape for a century but it just shows kind of how these landscapes want to express themselves when they when they're given the chance that must have given you a tremendous feeling in your soul, as it were. You thought, wow, this is emotional. This is something real that I can identify with. Yeah, it was incredibly powerful. It was a real epiphany. And I think what it did for me most of all was gave me, gave me hope that um, this landscape, which I absolutely love, you know, it feels like I'm kind of constantly complaining about the state of our Lake District landscape, but I absolutely love it. You know, it stirs me just as much as any kind of visitor to the Lake District, but I can see how much richer it could be we are starting to see that kind of richness in some places at Horswater. Certainly, you know, nothing like as much as, as there is in Norway because it's had a lot, lot longer to run. But I can see the potential and I can see that reflowering of the landscape and the return of wildlife. A day's racing by, Lee. We've uh, come over the brow. Uh, onto the corpse road and uh, there's a keener breeze now the sky is blue so that means at this time of year it's going to be a very cold night and uh, the sun is just dipped below the horizon so yes we're moving that way in front of us we've got heart of fell with little bits of snow on the cornice edges uh, some on brand street some on Amardale Ill Bell and High Street itself. And I can just see the very tip end of Horsewater Reservoir itself. Hartofell is interesting to you, I believe. It is. So Hartofell is one of the real hotspots on site. Just a spectacular place for alpine plants. So ratching around up there, you see the kind of diversity that you'd expect to see in the Alps. You know, absolutely wow. spectacular, big, bulky herb species growing. But they're only growing there not because they want to grow on vertical terrain, but because that's the only place they've managed to evade the, the grazing pressure in the wider landscape. Cool. One of the things that we're doing is putting a big fenced area underneath and we're seeing those alpine plants literally kind of spilling off the crags and recolonizing that ground below. So what we hope is that as that happens, more people will be able to see that and they'll be able to appreciate actually how much more sort of diverse and, and rich more of the landscape could be. Pirate Crag on Mardale Bell and Bleed Crag on High Street and so on, they can uh, be the next colonising areas maybe? Yeah, both Hartafell and the Bleewater Crags have got these sort of lime rich intrusions ah. and that supports a kind of greater diversity as well. Between those two crags, we had a survey done a while back that showed that we've got 20% of all of England's U17, it's called, which is basically a, an alpine meadow growing on a crag. Nationally important, and we need to take really good care of it. Well, Doffman capture that area. Wow. One of the things that comes out in your book is this sort of age-old conflict that farming uh, saw itself as having a destiny, season upon season, generation on generation, and that you were actually challenging that. Um, 
when I started in the job nine years ago, I don't think I really appreciated quite how controversial the RSPB taking on a couple of hill farms was going to be. Um, and yet yeah, I've suffered my fair share of, of, of quite challenging conversations about the need for change. You know, the Lake District is such a, a special place to so many people to say that maybe all is not quite as good as it could be is a, is a really difficult conversation to have. And particularly so with somebody for whom this is their working landscape. This is where they make their livelihood. Um, so to suggest that, that change is needed um, has, yeah, brought me you know, face-to-face with people who think that change absolutely isn't needed and things must stay as they are. I've had my fair share of, of meetings with neighbouring landowners and, you know, our MP was very critical, various farming organisations writing letters and complaining about what we're doing. And part of that is, I think, just that fear of the unknown, thinking that what we're doing here is what we want to see happen absolutely everywhere. And yes, we want to see the whole landscape become richer for wildlife, but we're not saying that we've got all the answers and that everybody must massively reduce sheep numbers and replace them with cattle and block up every single wall and drain and re-wiggle every river because you know that just isn't going to happen and it's not going to work in every valley and for every person so i think that the way that we've tried to tackle it is is increasingly as we talk about what we're doing here making it clear that what we're doing here is to suit our particular context Uh, you know there are also practical concerns and on a common we can't just change the grazing regime because it will just affect the way that the neighbouring hefts operate so we've had to go to quite significant lengths to minimise the impact on our neighbours getting a fence on common land is really challenging so we've just managed to secure permission for a fence which went in at the back end of last year and that stops sheep straying into this area so we can now manage this in a way which delivers what we want for the landscape without having a negative impact on others another big way that I've tried to sort of cope with those sort of challenging situations is rather than thinking of the farming community as one great big monolithic thing which it just isn't it's made up of people with a huge range of different views and opinions taking the time to get to meet people face to face and chatting with them and finding that that you know actually there's a lot more that kind of unites us than divides us with almost everybody but getting into group meetings with big groups of people is always a recipe for disaster so trying to avoid that and kind of spending the time and you know talking to people one-on-one has been a big help i think it got really tough, I gather. You actually thought, do I need to do this job? Should I do another job? Yeah, I considered jacking it in probably a sort of a couple of years into the job and I, I, um, I was almost ready to take a teacher training course, actually. For a while, I, I had to get some sort of professional help. You know, I had to get some talking therapy to help me cope with the fairly considerable mental strain that I found myself under and it was quite you know it was quite difficult at times one of the things that really helped me through that talking therapy was recognizing that I needed to find things that I had agency for in my own life Um, and one of the things that worked really well for me was starting running and being able to see that you know if I stuck to something I would get an improvement you know to start with it was hard to do a mile or two and then slowly that built up until eventually I was able to do you know a half marathon you know I'm not terribly athletic so that was a big achievement for me that not only helped my kind of mental health just through the benefits of exercise but also by being able to see that actually I do have control over some things helped me to put a lot of other things into perspective um, and that kind of reinvigorated me and, and you know re- reaffirmed my sort of commitment to, to what I'm doing at Horsewater and, well, and I'm pleased I came back. It's very evident that whatever transformation in your mind went on was a very positive one for this landscape. Thanks. As we now begin the descent towards Horsewater itself with Nambiel Pass silhouetted on the horizon we're going to find two rather interesting dwellings, which actually gives another sort of context to the life of this landscape in the past. It's interesting coming down when you get a good clear view into Riggindale and rough crags with High Street and Kister Pike and uh, Nambiel Pass and Harterfell, so you get a tremendous view. But in the foreground... We've got uh, a little dwelling without any roof, uh, stone structure, the clear door and end gables and lower down there's a two-roomed dwelling as well. Higher up I noticed there was evidence of peat cuttings. Are these peat cutting dwellings where they stored peat? I don't think they are. So lots of ruined buildings like these dotted across the lakes are peat houses that were, were used for drying the peat turfs that were cut from the fell. But the fact that this near one, uh, which is high loop, it has a window, um, and the other one, which is low loop, 
um, has sort of two rooms suggests that these were much more likely places that people slept, that people lived temporarily. That combined with their name, High and Low Loop, L-O-U-P, suggests to me that these have a, a very different use and that they were used by shepherds to protect the flocks that were up on the hill from wolves. Right. So loop, um, as in lupine, could be a remnant of either Latin period, uh, you know, the Roman or the Norman period, more likely the Norman period. Um, loop is the word that the French use for wolf. And there's a number of features on Mardell Common which kind of support that theory. A little while back we passed Woof Crag, which is a derivation of wolf. Uh, and it seems likely to me that that was a place where it was named that way because wolves perhaps bred there. It was a den site for wolves. A little way over the hill there is an Ulthwaite rig, um, which is another wolf-derived place name. And just behind us in the sort of the, the bowl over there, there are large old sheep pens, stone sheep pens. Captain Welter's... Yeah, in sort of there. Captain Welter bog, there's a sort of a, a, a large sheepfold just in right. there. Sterile now. It was used until fairly recently by the looks of it, but um, yeah, it's, it looks to me like it's been there for a long time. I think it's reasonable to argue that wolves drove a lot of the shepherding culture of the Lake District. Where wolves are still present in lots of mountain regions in Europe, shepherds still live up with their flocks in order to protect them from predation. Often they use livestock guardian dogs, often they kind of pen them at night. And I think putting together all those kind of little hints in this landscape seems to me that these shelters probably were for those shepherds to live in temporarily. The fact that there are sort of multiple buildings here is probably because there were multiple flocks of sheep up here and there were more than one shepherd and they came up here. These are like little summer farms, basically, that people would have kind of moved up into to tend to their livestock. So it's really fascinating, I think, looking at these and trying to imagine how, how people lived. The corpse road winding past it would have been an easy way up and down to the village down below. Supplies would have come up, you know, news would have come up. Um, so they would have been quite connected to the people down in the valley below. We're coming near the end of the walk now as the day becomes heading rapidly towards dark. And uh, it's been an interesting walk, that's definitely true. Uh, what lessons have you learnt from the process and perhaps the finances that that, that indicates? Yeah, I think we've learned a lot. We've learned a lot about the, the ecology. We've definitely learned an awful lot about the farming operation. And that was a big part of why the RSPB took these tenancies on, wanted to work in partnership with United Utilities to, to really understand hill farming from the inside. And what we've learned over the course of, of the last decade um, is that farming sheep by itself is a deeply unprofitable operation in um, you know very marginal upland landscapes like this particularly when you factor in labor the amount that you spend on rearing sheep up here vastly outstrips what you make from those sheep the wool's worth nothing anyway the wool's worth very little and you know the reason that we've got sheep in such big numbers in this country is because historically they were the bearers of fleece and meat and when the fleeces stopped having a value in a sane world the production of sheep would have dropped massively but that happened at a time when government money was being poured in to support hill farming operations. So it sort of decoupled farmers from those basic market forces of supply and demand. And so sheep have continued to be produced. And for a period after the Second World War, you know, farmers were paid per head of livestock. So the economically rational thing for them to do was increase those numbers as much as they could and claim as much of that farming subsidy. And we're still dealing with the legacy of those subsidies. So they don't exist anymore. Subsidies are different, but it still had a real legacy. And because it's played out over such a long period of time, people can't really remember what it was like before that government funding messed everything up, frankly. Mm. Um, So it's only the government support that that kind of keeps these farms operational. And as those farming subsidies and farming payments are changing and, and reducing... Farmers are going to be hugely vulnerable. You know, there's a very real chance that a lot of them are just going to go go bust. There's been a number of studies that have been carried out that chime very closely with our sort of lived experience here at Horswater in that if you farm within the land's carrying capacity and you don't add in fertilisers and supplementary feed and, you know, expensive veterinary sort of mineral treatments and things, you might not be a profitable farm, but you will almost certainly be a lot less loss-making as a farm and that is the way that the people up here had no choice but to farm for hundreds and hundreds of years so the people that were living using these kind of stone cottages next to us here they had to operate within those natural limits and if they tried to exceed them if they tried to carry more sheep than they could grow enough hay for to feed through the winter for example then they were going to end up with loads of dead livestock you know and that 
basic fundamental truth of farming within the land's carrying capacity is a big part of what drives us now. This study that was carried out called the Less is More Report looked at 50 farm businesses and advised the same basic approach. So by doing that and combining that more sustainable farming operation with other income streams such as ecotourism, forestry, we work with a small community interest company called Wild Intrigue who have a um, red squirrel hide on our land. That hide is booked out all of the time and we receive a small cut of the income from that. So there's lots of people out there that want to kind of innovate, want to be entrepreneurial and just would love to have access to land. So I think there are huge opportunities. The government funding now is going more towards paying farmers for producing improved Um, water quality, reducing flood risk, locking up more carbon alongside that sustainable food production. So the way that we've come to think of it is that livestock is just one of a basket of products that we produce from this landscape alongside carbon and water and wildlife. So your overall Nadal farm and estate, is that making any money? Mostly it's kind of cost covering. Um, So the money that comes in through basic payment scheme, high level stewardship, and other grants, ecotourism and farming, covers all of our costs. So in most years, we are not returning a profit to the RSPB. We are investing all of the money that's coming in back into the land and into people. So my salary, the salaries of my team, 10 of us working up here at Horswater now, the local suppliers, local contractors, all of that stuff. So it's lots of money kind of circulating in the local economy. The RSPB is not getting rich as a result of us farming, but that's not the business that we're in, obviously. Well, the sun's completely gone, but the sky is light enough for us to see our footprints as we head down the grass bank. Uh, We must get lower down so that we can get close to the road and have our final few words. That was a steep descent. Uh, We were almost out of the road. Uh, The gloaming is with us. And uh, I love Kids to Pipe, the way it perches itself up there above Riggendale. It's fantastic. And then the rig over here. Um, The darkness is very apparent here. You went through a dark time, you might say, as well, early on. Uh, Were there, in your conversations with various farmers and projects, were there some that really inspired you and lifted the gloom a little bit for you? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the really exciting thing is that there are so many people doing positive things now. um, And it took me a while to find them out, I think, because there's so many farmers that are just doing things head down. They don't have a sort of PR department that's sort of publicising it. So the work that Danny Teasdale and and James Rebanks and a lot of their neighbours in the Matterdale area are totally inspiring. The fact that that is farmer-led lots and lots of you know relatively small interventions by themselves adding up to a really impressive program of work it's hugely inspiring so I live not that far from Masterdale and I can see you know the changes that are happening on Great Mel Fell the move away from sheep grazing to just ponies is you know allowing the heathland to recover and lots and lots of trees coming back I drive past um, James's place fairly regularly and see all these great big wide hedges that he's putting in um, you know lots more trees and and he's making it work that is totally inspiring and in some ways it's you know in some ways I find that more inspiring than something that's being done by a big organization like ours because it's got to work for him and the other farmers that are doing those things for their livelihoods and I think it gives you real hope for a better future for a lot of our Lake District landscape. We're looking over into Riggendale, which looks pretty dark now. I have been up there, but not to the head of the valley because it's not a place you normally wander strictly. You wander up onto Kids to Pike or you've got rough crags. Um, when you think about that landscape up there, it had the eagles. What do you think in 50 years' time that might look like? The bare bones of that landscape will look very similar. You know, that skyline is going to still be there. It is going to still be the same appreciably rugged spectacular landscape that everybody who comes to the Lake District falls in love with but the difference is going to be looking at the detail looking at the texture so the looking looking at our feet feet, yeah so there's going to be a lot more flowers in the sward those beds of bracken that we can see now will have trees growing out of them those trees will have red starts and pie flycatchers in them and hopefully overhead there will be a pair of eagles and perhaps they're, they're young nesting back on that eagle crag again where, um, where they returned to once before.
Journey's end, night falling. We're down here in this most wonderful of valleys. Haven't been here for a little while, Mark. Um, it's never a bad time to visit Horswater. Fabulous. No, you can never fail to enjoy this place. I know so many people who love Lake District, but treasure this especially because, apart from this one road and the road end, it's just walking country. It's, it is, yeah. It's wild walking country. You mentioned wild country. Of course, that picks up the theme of today. Wild Fell, this great book. I highly recommend it. Available in uh, all bookshops and online, of course. And if one can support our fabulous uh, Cumbrian bookshops, even better. A really interesting wander. I think lots of fascinating questions brought up here. Some of them, you know, this is complicated stuff, this. Uh, getting this balance right, taking people with you. I think the book is is pretty brave in a way, but in some ways I also, and this is very much a personal view, I kind of think this change is happening. You know, if you go to so many projects around the lakes now, and um, Lee mentioned James, um, and he mentioned Danny, both of whom we've spoken to um, previously, but there's other great things. There's Wild Ennerdale, that's quite an advanced project, big scale project like this, Hard Knock Forest, very similar stuff happening there it's happening there's this kind of wave of change rolling across the lakes and i'd like to see farmers come along and share in the dividends particularly around ecotourism and stuff like that but how do you feel mark yeah i think so and the book will actually play a part in that continuing message people will get to read it this is people have adored what james has written yeah and that's reached an international audience in a most empowering way an impressive way and I hope this book does too. I bought two copies. Let me just say, I'm hoping... You're going to read it twice. <laughs> well, I, I'll give, give you one as a gift, but uh, oh, I'm hoping uh, Lee will sign them for me. But no, I think more people will come to this area and have a different view as a result of this particular book. I second that. Right, now we're going to do our usual housekeeping. We're on episode 76. I've got that right because I asked you before we recorded <laughs> yeah. this bit. Yes, yeah, 77 trombones comes next. Right, very good, okay. Uh, 76, for all 75 previous episodes, please visit www.countrystride.co.uk. If you like what we do, you'd like to support us, there's a few ways you can do it. One, you can share the fact that you like this on social media, tell your friends about it. Secondly, you can buy our books, and we're delighted to say, The Oldswater Walking Companion, 20 great new walks around Oldswater, out now and shipping great little book that one Uh, and thirdly you can support us on patreon there's a link where you can give two pounds a month as little as two pounds a month to support us and we'd like to say thanks this month to jenny kilbride debbie thompson daniel swain mervyn rochester ivan lewis elizabeth beckett paul hunt john york jeff appleyard simon vaux and Teresa Pike, and I believe Teresa, you've got lined up, Mark, for a potential podcast. Yeah, I think in April she'll take her hand to her hometown of Kirby Lonsdale, a place I have great affection for. It's one of the places I, as a teenager, I used to go to a farm nearby on my sort of summer holidays from the Cotswolds, so I knew Kirby very well. Early introduction for you to this neck of the woods. Uh, and then finally, we had a couple of letters from people who were slightly worried about some of the content of last fortnight's podcast, Mark. So we went to uh, Oldswater and we talked about the campaign, the successful campaign to save Oldswater, spearheaded by Norman Burkett QC. And uh, this is uh, an email we got in from Julie, uh, which was representative of a few other emails we received. She said, I enjoyed this podcast, but I was disappointed at about 30 minutes in when Miles McInnes told the story of the case of the unidentified woman who was murdered. The words of the person quoted as hoping for such an advocate were very much of their time. I have no objection to the story being broadcast, but what disappointed me was that the view wasn't challenged or put into context. There is an element of misogyny in the anecdote which spoiled an otherwise excellent edition of one of my favourite podcasts. Well, Julie, thanks very much for the email. We, we do welcome all communications. Just to reflect on, on what was said there, the fact is that Norman Burkett QC was, was clearly a, a superb advocate uh, and his skills could be used for good, as in the case of the Nuremberg trials uh, and, of course, uh, in the cause of Oldswater there, but also for ill. 
Miles was quoting one of Lord Burkitt's contemporaries um, there, and I mean, actually, I read that as a, a damning indictment, really, of the amorality of his work. Um, but hope you very much enjoyed today's. Um, we're off, I think, to the Howgills next, Mark. Oh, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I was on Radio Cumbria yesterday morning and they asked us, where are you going next? I said, we're off down to Horsewater and then we're going to look for fell ponies on the Howgills. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And I did say we'll be off to Kobe Lonsdale as well. So Radio Cumbria listeners will be listening in, if nobody... Wonderful. It's getting dark now. It's time to go back. I think we're off for a bit of a meal in Oldswater as well, so we've got a treat to look forward to. Um, (laughs) Thanks very much for joining us on this fabulous walk uh, on the old Corpse Road and up from Naddle Farm in the company of Lee, and we'll see you next time on Country Stride.